0: Good morning. The passage today is from Genesis 3, uh, verses 8 through 24. Please read or listen along. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, Well, the woman whom you gave to, me, to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, well, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head And at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of God.
1: Heavenly Father, there is quite a lot in here. There is much that you are saying to us in these words. But I pray today that your spirit who is present with us, would help us to see one thing that we really needed to see today. And in response, you would help us to obey in at least one way. Lord, deliver us. Guard this church from ever being a place where we gather to have our minds grown, to learn something new. Father, we don't come to your word to learn something new. We come to your word to be addressed by you. And whether you see fit to say something new or remind us of something old, we ask for power to obey. (laughs) why we're here. So whether we've been in church a thousand times or whether this is our first time, I pray that we would hear one thing that you're saying and we would leave with one way to obey that you have commanded. Not so that we can come back next Sunday and wave a flag about how great we are and all the things we've done for you, but so we can know the joy this week of being who you made us to be. You're a wise creator. Help us to listen to you and not try to take your place. In Jesus' name, amen. The continued presence of pain and suffering and sorrow in the world is often used as a reason to deny the existence of God. If God is real, why is there so much evil in the world? So the argument goes, best case scenario, he's real but not powerful enough To bring an end to our sorrow. Worst case scenario, he's plenty powerful, but he doesn't care enough to do anything about it. Either way, whichever form the argument takes, that the perceived problem of evil leaves many people unwilling to believe that God exists. And that if he does exist, that he's actually worthy of total allegiance. I'll be the first to admit, friends, that there are a lot, a whole lot of questions I wish the Bible answered about the problem of evil. It doesn't say everything that, that we wish it would say or that I wish it would say, but I want to remind you this morning that the fact that, that the Bible doesn't say everything we wish it would say should not stop us from paying very careful attention to everything it does say. Does that make sense? God help us if we use what it doesn't say as an excuse to not hear and obey what it does say. And what it does say about the presence of pain and suffering and sorrow and and why it's here and what it's doing is critical if we're going to live in light of reality. What's reality? The the truth of who God is and his ways. That's where we start in knowing reality. And according to our text, Genesis 3, the presence of pain and suffering in the world, please hear this, do not threaten or call into question the existence or power or goodness of God. They don't. To the contrary... They strongly affirm the truth of all of them. I'll say that again. The continued presence of pain and sorrow and suffering in this world does not threaten or undermine the goodness of God, the wisdom of God, or the power of God. To the contrary, it confirms, it it validates, it backs up and sustains, upholds all those things. You know, Genesis 1 reminds us, if if you've been here for a couple weeks, you you heard this, that that pain and suffering are not normal. They're they're abnormal. Why do I say that? Because the world as God originally created it wasn't a world full of pain and suffering and sorrow. The the first man and woman, they lived in paradise. They they had a perfect relationship with God, with one another, and with all of creation. And and the Lord gave them a simple command— Genesis 1.16, you, Adam and Eve, may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Notice God's word <coughs> reflects both his lavish generosity, every tree, and his absolute authority. You eat of that tree, you'll die. Lavish generosity, absolute authority. All Adam and Eve needed for life, God graciously gave them in abundance, starting with the gift of his presence. All they had to do was remain in a position of obedient submission to their creator. That's all they had to do. And the first part of Genesis 3, looked at this last Sunday, tells us the sad story of how Adam and Eve came to do the exact opposite of that. They didn't remain in that position of of glad submission to their creator. They rejected God's authority. They they asserted their own autonomy. They disobeyed his command. And note, friend, that wasn't an accident. Okay, It wasn't an oversight. It wasn't a slip-up. It was deliberate. It was intentional. It was a blatant act of treason. It was the creature saying, I don't want you ruling over me as my creator. That's the first half of Genesis 3. And the second half that we're looking at this morning reveals God's response to their sin. So if the first half is the the origin of sin, the second half is the effect of sin as determined by God's response to their sin. And notice, as you heard the word read, God doesn't ignore their rebellion. He doesn't turn a blind eye to their disobedience. He keeps his promise. Think about that. If there's any part of you that, that read these words and thought, God, why could you not have cut them some slack? You should Quiet your mouth and think, do I really want God to go against his word? Because the fact that he judges them the way he does here, and we're going to look at this, reflects the fact that he's a trustworthy God, that he keeps his promises does what he says. He punished their sin. He decrees an oracle of judgment that doesn't just affect Adam and Eve, but all their descendants, all of us. And so pain and conflict and death become our lot from that point forward. And from verse eight onward, this entire chapter, more than anything else, it bears witness to the undeniable justice of God. The justice of God. So hear this at the outset, friend. Pain and suffering do not threaten God's existence, okay? They confirm his authority. They don't expose his weakness. They reveal his justice. They don't undermine his goodness. They lead us to salvation. Why do I say that? Well, here's the big idea. I say that because the curse of sin leaves us, two things, rightly humbled by the judgment of God and absolutely dependent, completely dependent on the mercy of God. Rightly humbled, completely dependent. That that is the divinely intended effect of these words. Two things, humility before the justice of God and dependence on the mercy of God. That's God's goal in giving us this word. That's that's his goal this morning, that we would walk out of this place more humbled by the justice of God and more completely dependent on the mercy of God. By the way, that's exactly what the original recipients of this book, the people of Israel, needed as they were what? Wandering around in the wilderness. Talk about experiencing pain, sorrow, suffering. That was their existence They needed to hear these words. And so do we in our own suffering. Why? Because these words remind us, friends, that that our pain isn't pointless. Our sorrows are not senseless. Every taste of the curse of sin is intended by God to increase our humility and strengthen our dependence. Please hear that. And I say that because because these words, as I prayed earlier, they're they're not just informational. Oh, that's interesting. That's why there's so many bad things in the world. They're not just informational. They're motivational. This word is designed by God to do something in your life. And it does that something. It fulfills its purpose in your life, if you're willing to let it, by directing your attention, our attention, to the character of God seen in his response to our sins. It accomplishes those two things. It it humbles us before his justice. It leaves us completely dependent on his mercy by directing our attention to the character of God in his response to our sin. And I say that because God's response to sin has not changed. He didn't get a makeover somewhere in the middle of the Bible. The same way he responded to Adam and Eve's sin all the way back then in the garden is the exact same way he responds to our sin today. Nothing about who God is has changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So how does God respond? How does God respond? A couple answers. Point number one, God responds to sin by pursuing sinners. That's right, Beth. He pursues sinners. And by the way, let Beth's example provoke you and unleash you. Because if I say anything at this point that in your heart you go, I am so grateful that is true. You can do exactly what she just did. Because that encourages the people around you, okay? So let, let, let us be rightly vocal this morning. God pursues sinners. Look at verse 7. Look at verse 7. Verse 7 ends with the man and the woman experiencing something they had never experienced before. What's that? The crushing weight of guilt and shame. Okay, they knew that what they had done at the end of verse 7 was, was wrong. Their sin was not hidden from their conscience. You know who else it wasn't hidden from? The sight of Almighty God. Their creator, Hebrews 4.13, reminds us, and no creature is hidden from his sight, the creator's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Okay, the very moment they, they took that forbidden fruit and they ate, the Lord, their creator, knew exactly what they had done. And he had every right to destroy them for attempting to usurp his throne. Why do I say that? Because immediate and irrevocable physical and spiritual death is exactly what they deserved. Right at the end of verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, they knew that they were naked, and God destroyed them. That wouldn't be capricious. That wouldn't be excessive. That would be justice. What did God do? What did God do? Look at verse 8. He came looking for him. Walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Just think about that. the the fact that they recognized the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. They they heard that sound and they knew what it was. What does that say? That says it was a familiar sound. You don't recognize the sound unless you've heard it before. It was a familiar sound. They were used to God's presence. After all, the, the Garden of Eden was what? It was a mountain sanctuary right? It was the temple of God, the dwelling place of God. And in that place, walking with God in the cool of the day just seems to be a very normal, if I could even use that word, customary thing to do. But this time it was different. It was different. Instead of running toward God, they ran away from God, they they fled from his presence, they hid in the trees of the garden and, and notice there's a terrifying logic to their response. They're not crazy. What's crazy is this American Western idea that in that moment what they needed was a friend that could come up next to them and say, don't worry about all this, God's a loving God. That's crazy, he is a loving God but he's a holy God too. He's holy in his love. Their response makes sense, friends. It it is what sinners instinctively do when we are confronted with the holiness of God. Moses hid his face. Isaiah pronounced a curse on himself. The Apostle John fell down as though he was dead. That's not abnormal. That's right. That's normal. It's not a small thing. It's not a small thing to stand before your Creator guilty of sin. It's an exceedingly terrifying thing. They were shaking, and rightly so. You know, there, there are times, just to think about this, there are times when we try to help one another overcome various fears. Maybe you've done this by explaining why the fear doesn't make sense. You know, you think of, if you have little children, you might, you might tell your child, no, listen, I listen, you don't need to be afraid. You don't need to be afraid. And, and we give all sorts of reasons why they shouldn't be afraid. There, there are times when we, we do that. We try to explain why the fear doesn't make sense. Friend, please hear this. In this moment, fear made absolute sense. All the sense in the world. And so I say to you, if you are cherishing sin in your heart, if you have done what is wrong, if you're living a lie, do not silence right now the the pangs of fear in your soul as the voice of an overactive conscience. Your fear isn't a mirage. Your your fear is real because God is real. And, And you don't need another drink You don't need new friends. You don't need to get over it. You need to listen to the voice of your creator. And even now, friend, he calls to you as he called to the man. Look at verse 9. Where are you? Where are you? You're, You're supposed to be right here. I made you to know me. I created you to know me. Notice he doesn't say, how dare you? He says, where are you? Where are you? God's not running from you in the midst of your sin, friend. He's pursuing you. He's knocking on the door of your heart, not because he's lost sight of you, but because you've lost sight of him. He knows perfectly well where Adam is. He knows perfectly well where you are right now. So so why is he calling out? Why is he calling out? He's calling out because he wants you to come to him. He's calling out because he wants to give you an opportunity right now to bring your sin and your shame into the light. Look at verse 10. And the man said, he could not help but speak. In response to the almighty call of God. I heard you, the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. The Lord God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? I mean, again, is God asking that because, sorry, there was a time lapse on my Garden of Eden video feed and I missed the moment. No, he knows perfectly well that Adam ate of the tree of which he was commanded not to eat. So so why does he ask the question? Again, because he's graciously pursuing Adam. He's he's inviting Adam to agree with God's true, right, divine assessment of who Adam really is. He's coming after him, inviting him to walk into the light. And and notice here the, the crux of the issue. Notice in verse 10 that the problem is not that Adam made a bad choice. Or Adam failed to live up to his full human potential. Or Adam slipped up. No, Adam disobeyed the explicit command of God. Do you realize that is where ultimately our sense of guilt comes from as human beings? I've talked with people on a plane, traveling, who do not believe in the existence of God. And I asked to one young man, so tell me, what do you do with your guilt? And he didn't know what to say. He acknowledged he had significant guilt, and he didn't know what to say. God has hardwired something into the human conscience that we cannot escape, friends. Even if you deny the existence of God, your conscience will still condemn you because God has written his law on the fabric of your heart. But instead of humbly confessing his sin, what did the man do? What's he do? Look at verse 12. He shifts the blame. That's not my fault. It's that daggone woman's fault. And in case you forgot God, you're the one that gave her to me, so check it out. It's your fault. Now, we can laugh about that, but we laugh because we relate. Right? That's why we laugh. We can relate. We get it. We, we see in his response our own temptation to acknowledge the presence of sin, but to not take personal responsibility for our sin. We're happy to say, oh, yeah, broken world. Nobody's perfect. Yeah, I'm not perfect either. I mean a little more than you, but nobody's perfect. But personal responsibility? Mm. I'm not sure I want to go there. Adam, Adam blamed other people blamed God, everyone but himself. And and the woman was really no better. Look at verse 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. So the man blames the world. The woman blames the devil. And nobody takes responsibility for their sinful flesh. That's what's going on. Now, there's truth in the responses. Does the world pull us into sin against the Lord? Absolutely. Does the devil tempt us to rebel against the Lord? Absolutely. But listen, friends, our temptations would never lay hold, take root, and become and birth sin in our hearts absent something wrong in us too, our sinful flesh. Everyone says, we all like to say, it's somebody else's fault, and we've been doing that for a long, long, long time. And so right now, my my plea to you is very simple. If, If you are experiencing the conviction of the Holy Spirit about an area of sin in your life, and you feel like God will not leave you alone, well, take heart, friend. Take heart. God is being merciful to you. He's pursuing you. He's calling you. He's inviting you even now to be honest about the depth of your sin. The, The biggest issue on the table in your life is not what other people are making you do or the devil is making you do. The biggest issue on the table in your life as far as God is concerned and truth is concerned is what you are choosing to do. That's the big issue. And If you've chosen to disobey the word of your creator, then there's a very good reason you feel guilty right now. It's real. And so the Lord's command to you is simple. Stop running. Stop running. Stop hiding. Confess your sin. Repent of your sin. God, God is coming after you. God won't let that voice in your conscience shut up because he loves you too much. He's pursuing you. He knows what you've done. He always has, and he's inviting you as he invited the first man and woman to agree with his assessment of you. Do you realize that's all we're doing when we're confessing our sin? We're agreeing with what God has already said about us and already knows to be true. And that's not just something that we do at the beginning of the Christian life. Please don't sit there listening to me saying, you know what, confess my sin at that one point. We are good to go. What does 1 John 1.8 say to you? If we say, you say, we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not right now in us. John was writing that to Christians. And, and so that's why we take time at every Sunday service, like we did today, to confess our sins to the Lord. Okay? It's, it's not about wallowing in our guilt. It's about walking in the light. It's about agreeing with what God already says about us, his assessment of our thoughts and and words and deeds. That's what Adam and Eve needed to do and hesitated to do were reluctant to do. May it not be said of us, friends. We serve a God who is faithful to pursue sinners. He doesn't run from us. He comes after us in our sin. And that is an incredible expression of his mercy. God pursues sinners. Here's the second way he responds. God judges sinners. God judges sinners. He he pursues sinners, and he judges them. Look at verse 14. Starting in that verse and going all the way through verse 19, the Lord decrees three different oracles of judgment. And note, his, his pursuit begins with the man. Why? Because he has a unique leadership responsibility as we saw several weeks ago, that leaves him ultimately accountable for the whole situation. But his word of judgment begins with a serpent. With a serpent, he punishes him in his role as a creature by condemning him to crawl in the dust and eat the dust. Now, please don't get hung up on does that mean the serpent had legs before this moment? That's not the point of the passage. The point is that this is a symbol, crawling in the dust, eating the dust, of absolute humiliation And defeat. That's the symbol. It's why King Solomon in Psalm 72 9 prays that his enemies would lick the dust. The Lord is condemning the serpent to utter humility, humiliation, and defeat. And the Lord disrupts this unholy alliance between the serpent and the woman by, by placing enmity between them. In verse 15, specifically between the serpent's offspring and the woman's offspring. He shall bruise your head, the Lord says to the serpent, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, read in light of the entire Bible, we know that God is not speaking here merely of the fact that people hate snakes and snakes try to bite people. Okay, there's a lot more than that going on here, all right? God's describing a spiritual reality, a cosmic conflict that's sustained throughout the entire Bible and and continues today. So, So hear this. What is this conflict, okay? What's verse 15 about? Here's what God's saying. The presence of sin in creation immediately divides all the children of man from that point forward into two categories, and only two. There is no hybrid. Listen, either you are the spiritual offspring of the serpent in the sense that you are following the devil in his rebellion against the Lord. Or you are the spiritual offspring of the woman in the sense that you are opposed to the devil and submitted to the purposes of God. Two categories. That's the beginning. Verse 15 is the beginning on earth of the conflict between good and evil. The very beginning. And it reminds us of why genealogy and offspring are such a big deal in the rest of Genesis. We'll come back to that in a few minutes. But for now, simply notice, look at verse 15, that God says this war between Satan and his offspring, the woman and her offspring, is not going to end in a stalemate. Notice that. The offspring of the woman are what? They're bruised on the heel. They're ravaged. They're attacked. But but they're not destroyed. Not so the offspring of the serpent, right? What about the offspring of the serpent? Well, they will be destroyed with a far more serious and ultimately fatal blow to the head. We'll come back to that. The Lord condemns the serpent, and then he turns to punish the woman and the man. And notice in these words to both Eve and Adam, friends, that God remains absolutely sovereign. It's not as though sin came in and God lost control. Or sin grabbed the wheel of the universe and God's sort of hanging out the window like, give that back! No, no, no. In his sovereignty, God in these judgments is simply declaring a new state of affairs. He's saying This is what life in rebellion against me is going to be like. This is what it's going to be like. Your world will be filled with physical pain, relational suffering, and death. And this new spiritual war between good and evil on earth is going to play out in a particularly painful way in our unique roles as men and women. So the Lord, what? He speaks first to the woman, focusing on her experience as a wife and a mom, and says that the entire process of bearing children will be filled with pain, and that her relationship with her husband is going to be marked with strife. Now we know from the way the Lord uses this word desire in Genesis 4 verse 7 where God says, speaking to Cain, sin is crouching at your door, Cain. Its desire is for you. That that's not a holy desire. This verse 16, desire for her husband or against her husband, is not a good thing, it's a a wicked thing. In other words, instead of obediently fulfilling her role as an intelligent helper, the woman will struggle with usurping and resisting her husband's leadership. And instead, look back at verse 16, of obediently fulfilling his role as a servant leader, her husband will what? Struggle with dominating and exploiting his wife. That's, that's a picture, friends, of the social consequences of sin, of, of the conflict and tension between human beings that all comes about as a result of our rebellion against God. God is saying, guys, it's no longer not only not well in your relationship with me. As a result of that, none of your other relationships are going to be right. They're all going to be corrupted by sin. That reminds us that when you disobey God's command, it doesn't just affect you personally, it affects everyone around you. Because of our sin, we hurt other people, and other people hurt us. In verse 17, look there, the Lord turns to Adam, and he condemns him for, for passively listening to his wife and following her into sin, instead of leading her and protecting her from sin. Yet it's very clear in verse 17, Adam disobeyed the Lord's command no less than Eve and God punishes him by decreeing a new state of affairs in his role as provider for their family. What's the change? Well, Adam, the work that was once a joy is now going to be a burden. What does God say? Cursed Is the ground verse seventeen? Because of you, in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. I mentioned this earlier when I prayed this morning, but the fact, the fact that God tasked Adam with working and keeping the garden back in Genesis two before sin entered the world, reminds us that work is fundamentally a good thing. It's a God thing. But, but on this side of the fall, once sin came into the world, it's changed. It's been corrupted. There, there's a futility in our labor, if you would. A difficulty that, that makes our work as men and women alike painful and wearisome. I think all of us could agree with that on one level. We, we know the ground still yields fruit. Work is still good. God still uses it to provide for us. But it comes at a great cost. Look at verse 19. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. What did Adam and Eve think would happen by striking out on their own? what they think? They thought they could become like God. What actually happened? They became like dust. You know what that tells us? That tells us, friends, that sin will never exalt you. Never. Sin will always humble you. It will never exalt you. God replaces the, the delightful prospect of eternal life with a devastating promise of eternal death. But notice it wasn't just physical death as a result of their bodies aging and dying. It was a spiritual death as a result of being separated from God himself. Why do, why do I say that? I say that because the most excruciating consequence of sin in this entire chapter doesn't surface until the very end of the chapter. Where in verse 24, the Lord drives the man and the woman out of the garden. Get out, guys. Get out. You can't stay in my place anymore. You can't live in my presence anymore. Why not? Why not? Because the joy of eternal life. Symbolized in verse 22 by by access to this tree of life, the joy of that life, that is the exclusive reward of righteousness before the sight of God. Only the righteous can receive the joy of eternal life with God. Why? Because God is a God of justice. That the very thoughts, the very thought of unrighteous and sinful men attaining eternal life is abhorrent to the Lord. Psalm 45 verse 6, your throne, O God, is forever and ever the scepter of your kingdom. What's true about your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. What's that mean? You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. As the prophet Habakkuk says, God is of such pure eyes that he cannot even look on evil, and so he must send sinful men out of the garden. And from that point forward, friend, our entire existence to this very day takes place east of Eden. That's where we live. Separated from God, verse 24, by the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Remember the point, God doesn't just pursue sinners, he judges sinners, and here's where the application comes. The judgment of God is intended to sober us. It's intended to sober us, friends. It it explains why there's so much pain and suffering in the world, Because, because things like sickness and starvation and infertility and abuse and divorce and conflict and and a thousand other ways that we experience and taste the curse of sin, those consequences are designed by God to get our attention. They're they're like a, a, a blinding, flashing strobe light that says, something's not right. Something's not right. Something's gone wrong. Every taste of the curse of sin in you and around you is designed to do that. It confronts us with the reality that something's terribly wrong. And that something, according to Genesis 3, is not that we're uneducated or that we need to follow the golden rule a little better. The problem is that we are alienated from God. We're separated from God. And as a result of that, everything goes wrong in our world. I I love how C.S. Lewis once said, famously so, pain insists upon being attended to. Flashing light. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience. But he shouts in our pain. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. If you see pain and suffering in that light friend there's nothing unloving or uncaring about the continued presence of pain and suffering in the world it is a severe mercy it's severe but it's a mercy nonetheless because it humbles us in our sin and it and it brings us to a point where we recognize our need for a savior, our our complete dependence on God to make right what sin has made wrong. That's a severe mercy. And so Genesis 3 reminds us that the Lord reveals his righteousness through mighty acts of judgment, but doesn't stop there. He also reveals his righteousness through mighty acts of redemption. So God, what? He pursues sinners. He judges sinners. But he also redeems sinners. Amen. He redeems sinners. Okay? So, where's this going on? Because this seems like a really dark chapter. Where do we see redemption in here? Well, well, on every level, let's be honest, hope grows dim in Genesis 3. Quite dim. so, So, every area of life physical, relational, emotional, spiritual it's all corrupted by the curse of sin. But there are several signs in this chapter. That hope is not all lost. Even in judgment here, we see mercy. Now, it's only a faint spark. It's only a flickering wick. But over the course of the entire rest of the Bible, you know what happens? God fans these sparks into a tremendous flame of deliverance. Where do we see that? Well, look at verse 20. We're told rather abruptly here, verse 20, that Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Well, in Hebrew, the word for Eve and the word for living sound very similar. Now, why is that important beyond a geek out moment for the preacher? Here's why, okay? It seems as though Adam believed God's word. That while childbearing would now be marked by terrible pain, it was nonetheless through childbearing that God would continue to grant the gift of life to the human race. Albeit a life now existing under suffering and the curse of sin. But but Eve's offspring don't just represent the promise of physical life. They represent the promise of, of spiritual life. Remember back in verse 15. God declared that that just as the curse of sin was certain, so too was the day that the offspring of the woman, the life giver, would crush the head of the serpent. Defeating Satan himself. And and Genesis reaffirms that promise at the end of chapter 4, this time through the testimony of Eve. Listen. And Adam knew his wife again and she bore a son and called his name Seth, offspring. For she said, God has appointed for me, Seth means God has appointed for me, another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also was a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. You know what line the entire rest of the book of Genesis focuses on? It's Seth's line. It's Seth's line. Sustaining this this expectation that it's through Seth's line that God's going to make right all that sin destroyed. So, So Genesis 5 traces the family line of Seth to a man named Noah. Genesis 11 traces the family line of Noah to a man named Abram. And Matthew 1 traces the family line of Abram to a man named Jesus. And guess what Jesus does in Matthew chapter 4? He successfully resists the full onslaught of all the devil's temptations. Every temptation. And then for 33 years, he experienced the grief and sorrow of life in this broken world until one night in Matthew 26, we find Jesus in another garden. The Garden of Gethsemane. Sweating, drops, of blood staring in horror at the cup of God's wrath against the sin of the world. A punishment stretching all the way back to the sin of Adam and Eve and all the way forward to your sin and mine today. Staring at that cup. And in Matthew 27 Jesus dies on the cross in our place for our sins, draining that cup down to the last drop. Hebrews 2, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham in Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection, God crushed that serpent. He crushed Satan. He removed the guilt of sin, and he destroyed the power of for, sin for all who would cry out to Jesus for salvation. And he accomplished, once and for all, exactly what he promised to do back in Genesis 3, verse 21. Look there. Where he made for Adam and for his wife, male and female, all mankind, garments of skins and clothed them. That's a, that's a symbol, that's a powerful symbol, a pledge of God's commitment to cover the shame of their sin. I mean, Adam and Eve tried to do that, right? They they sewed fig leaves together and tried to cover the shame of their sin, but, but they couldn't do that. That was futile. God intervened, and God made them the clothing that they needed. Even in his judgments, he promised mercy. But please hear this, friend. What God accomplished through Jesus Christ was not just covering the sin and the shame of all who would trust in him. God completely removed the sin and shame of all who would trust in him. He didn't just hide it. He didn't just take it up and put it in a drawer with your name on it in case of future access necessary. He removed it. Romans 5 verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. <laughs> That's the story of the serpent crusher. God pursues sinners, God judges sinners, and God redeems sinners. And I love the fact that that story, both the humility and the promise of Genesis 3, is so well captured by one of my favorite Christmas songs that I was very tempted to sing this morning, except for the fact that prior to preaching, I thought you might think I had lost my mind. (laughs) What's this song? What's it called? Call out the title. Yes! That's right. Third stanza. No more let sin, sing it with me. And sorrows grow nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found, far as, far as the curse is found. It's true, friend. It's true, and and not just true in a big, high-level, religious, somewhere-in-the-Bible sense. Jesus removes the curse of sin in a personal sense. If you're in Christ, if you're a Christian, then you've been granted a decisive deliverance from the curse of sin in Genesis 3. Now we still taste the curse, right? In, in a physical sense, as long as we live in a fallen world, sometimes in very bitter ways. But if you're a Christian, then you are no longer under the curse in a spiritual sense, right? Rather, we know the smile of God's favor and, and the hope of eternal life. And, th- and this life that God has promised to us in Christ, brothers and sisters, is nothing less than a return to Eden. That The tree of life is waiting for you. Life with God, life in God. And I I ended our sermon several weeks ago in Genesis 2 with these words from Revelation. And I could think of no better way to end this sermon than with the same words today. Listen to the Eden that awaits all that are in Christ. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. When Jesus Christ died, What happened to the veil embroidered with cherubim that separated the people of God from the presence of God in the temple? From top to bottom, completely ripped in two, saying what? That the way home to Eden is open again. It's God's promise to you. Right now we live east of Eden. But spiritually, through the presence of the Holy Spirit, we taste Eden. And one day, in a physical sense, we're going to get right back there. We serve a God. We serve a God who in justly cursing, punishing sin, leaves us humbled by his judgment and completely dependent on his mercy. Praise God because of Jesus, friends. Complete dependence on his mercy is an extraordinarily good place to be. May the fear of God guard you this week from ignoring or minimizing the reality of your sin. May the mercy of God send you running to Jesus for redemption in the midst of your sin. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that though this story starts with such darkness, that you've made a way through Christ to bring us home. Lord, I pray for every man and woman in this room right now who feel anything but at home. Spiritually, they feel lost, They feel distressed. They feel separated. They feel confused. They don't even know what they feel. But I ask that you would open eyes to see you pursuing us in our sin. That you would give us the fear of the Lord that recognizes your just judgment against our sin and then you would send us running in faith to Christ that we might experience full redemption from all our sin. Thank you that even in judgment, you bring mercy. Strengthen our faith as we sing to you and share the Lord's Supper together in Jesus' name. Amen.